Would you turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. Most of us, I think, have, uh, have trouble with prayer. It's a mystifying element to us in our, in our Christian life. I think we instinctively know when prayer is improper, the, uh, the greater question is, what is a proper prayer? What is an appropriate way of expressing our dependence upon God? My father used to have a little poem that, uh, I can't remember all of it, but the last part of it went, uh, Bless uh, me, my wife, Jane, my sons, John and Ben, we four, no more, amen. And uh, I don't think you have to have a lot of uh, understanding of Scripture to uh, come to the conclusion that that's a very self-centered and inappropriate prayer. But the, the question is, what is a... What is the right way to pray? It's that uh, issue that Paul is concerned with in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through uh, 23, the end of the chapter. May I read uh, verses 15 and 16 to you? For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. I mentioned two weeks ago, most of Paul's knowledge of these believers was hearsay. And uh, he had heard uh, from other Christians, perhaps, that these believers were believers. They had a belief in Christ, which was the basis of their relationship to him. And they were loving, which is an evidence of that, uh, of that relationship. So the prayer that follows has to do with Christians. I find it's not hard to pray for non-Christians. I have a pretty good idea what non-Christians need. They need to hear the gospel. They need to have their eyes open to see their need for the Savior. And so with reference to my non-Christian friends, I can pray uh, boldly, and I think with a great deal of accuracy, that uh, they would uh, come across other people who know Christ, who can share the gospel with them, and then their eyes will be open to see the truth when they hear it. But the greater question is, how do you pray for a Christian brother or sister? And it's, that our, it's at that point that our minds tend to turn into mush. Uh, we pray, uh, bless John, bless Sue, bless uh, Mary, uh, bless the long, the short, the tall, bless them all, bless the missionaries overseas, and that's uh, basically the content of our, of our prayer. Socrates once said, the generalities are the refuge of a weak mind, and uh, I have to confess, at that point, uh, most of us are lazy at, at mind. We uh, have not really thought through an appropriate way to, uh, to pray for Christians. It's this that Paul is concerned with in the verses that follow. This is a prayer for believers. He prays in verse 17 and following, "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom." And the revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart or your mind, the eyes of your mind being enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. 
And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The uh, first impression that you gain from that, uh, from that paragraph is that it's a blizzard of words. It's like trying to drink out of a fire hose. Uh, how do you... How are you going to handle on this thing? Uh, this is the uh, passage which, with, with which uh, malignant Greek teachers tyrannize young, fledgling uh, Greek students because it's one long sentence from verse 15 to the end. And the difficult thing is to determine what the, main, uh, what the subject is and the main verb and unravel all the subordinate clauses and, and get it all straight. Actually, the, the prayer is very simple. Once you un- unravel the syntax, what Paul is praying for is one item, one thing that he prays for. He prays that these folks to whom he writes, and ultimately to us, will come to know God. It's just that simple. The word that Paul uses for knowledge is the word that means a deep, down, intensive, intimate, personal knowledge of God. Now that brings to mind two, two elements, two issues. An observation that I'd like to make about the biblical theory of knowledge and a question that's raised about knowing God. This passage, as well as uh, a number of other places in the New Testament, give us what I think is the biblical theory of knowledge. You do not come to know God initially by simply being presented with the facts and making some kind of rational connection between the facts about God and the way they, they apply to our life. That's not the way we come to know God at the outset. We all know that the Spirit of God has to act upon our minds and our hearts in order to open our eyes to see what's true. And then we can believe the truth about God. He has to apply the things of God, the truth of God, to our mind. He has to open our mind, the eyes of our mind, to see. Now, the same thing is true of every other area of knowledge in the Christian life. If it's true of our salvation, our initial salvation, it's also true of our sanctification. Growth in the Christian life and growth in our knowledge and awareness of who God is is not simply a matter of reading the Bible and making some kind of rational conclusion. As Paul puts it, it is by means of the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of of the flesh. In other words, it takes the Spirit of God to apply truth to life. Now, let me illustrate. When, when I was a, uh, a young man growing up, uh, I had a great deal of, of trouble with my identity. I had real problems in self-worth. Do, still do from time to time. I'm periodically uh, overwhelmed by the sense that, uh, you know, I don't amount to anything and I don't have anything to, uh, to offer God or anyone else. When I was in my first years in ministry, that used to to dominate my thinking so much of my time that uh, it really did prevent me from uh, doing a lot of things that I believe God wanted me to do. It was a major problem in my Christian life. I uh, talked to a friend of mine one time, and he suggested that uh, his solution to that problem was to walk through the house telling yourself that God loved you. He said, I used to go through the house saying, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. And I thought, that sounds like a good idea. So uh, I would go out into the hills behind our house in Los Altos, and I'd walk through the hills saying, God loves you. God loves me. God loves me. And it didn't work. I never could convince myself that God loved me. 
And uh, it occurred to me one day that, it was, well, that what I was doing was really no better than what the Ephesians were doing. And Luke tells us in Acts 19 that uh, there was an uproar in the, in the amphitheater in Ephesus, and they all shouted for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. In other words, they were trying to make something so simply by repeating it. And uh, that's what I was trying to do, but it didn't work. It didn't give me a sense of self-worth. I couldn't convince myself that God loved me. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that I am dependent upon God for all things, even the knowledge of my worth in God's eyes. And so I began to pray, God, help me to see myself as you see me. And you see, that's what Paul is doing. He, uh, he's praying that we may come to know God, but he realizes that we cannot know God by mere unaided human reason. The eyes of our enlightened uh, eyes of our mind must be enlightened. That's the first step. And uh, we are given by the Holy Spirit a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know Him. And that comes by faith. Prayer is nothing more or less than the expression of our dependence upon God for all things. And if we want truth to become real in our lives, we need to ask God to change us. That doesn't happen automatically. It's not like flipping a switch. There's a process involved. It may take time. But if you're troubled by some habit or some, uh, some self-doubt or some feeling about yourself that you cannot rid yourself of, begin to ask God to teach you to see yourself as God sees you or teach you obedience along the lines uh, that, that, you, uh, that you've discerned from Scripture. That's the way we learn. That's the way we grow. Now, the next issue that concerns me in this passage is that of the knowledge of God. What does Paul mean when he prays that we may know God and know him intimately? Uh, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He's not localized in, in space or in time. He exists everywhere. How can you embrace a spirit? How can you be intimate with someone that you can't see or hear audibly? Well, Paul is not talking about uh, physical or emotional intimacy. He is talking about the knowledge of God that comes through our mind, to our mind, from the mind of God. Paul gives us a clue clue here in the passage when he says the first step in the process is that the eyes of our mind or our heart must be enlightened. The way you come to know God is to know his mind. And his mind is revealed in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, no one knows what's really in God's mind. There are deep things there. There are profound things that we cannot know. The Spirit of God takes the things that are in the mind of God. He passes them on to the apostles, and then the Spirit of God combines the right words with the right thoughts so that the apostles then preach and write, and from them we derive an understanding of how God thinks. As a matter of fact, Paul says, the end of the process is that we have the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ right here, or at least part of it. The rest of it's in my office, the Old Testament. But, but this is the mind of Christ. That's how we know what God is thinking. And when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's, it's basically talking about knowing how God thinks. What dreams he has for you. What aspirations. What goals. What purposes. What plans. It's learning to look at all of life from the standpoint of, of God's mind. It's learning to think God's thoughts after him. And that comes from 
from Scripture as the Spirit of God takes the things in the mind of God that are recorded here in, in Scripture and implants them in our, in our hearts. Uh, the, Carolyn knows me better than anyone else in the world except God. He's the only one who knows me better. And uh, it's uncanny we can be at a, at a meeting, and after the meeting, as we're driving home, Carolyn will say, uh, you, you didn't like what that person said, did you? And I'll say, oh, no, did I make a bad face? Did I look like I smelled something bad when they said that or something? She'll say, oh, no, I just, I just know how you think. That's all. And uh, she knows me, you see. She knows me better than anyone. And that's what Scripture means when it says we, we know God. We have that deep, down, intimate sense of what God is thinking. Now, the best illustration in the Old Testament is that of Abraham. Abraham is said to be, uh, by both the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the friend of God. And uh, that particular expression is taken from an event in Abraham's life that's told in the book of Genesis. Abraham was sitting out in front of his uh, tent one day, and three strangers came by. Now, we know from the rest of the story that the strangers were God himself and two angels. Uh, Abraham took care of these men in, in the custom of the ancient uh, Near East. He fed them and, and met their needs, and they began to, to chat. And uh, one of the men, later identified as the Lord, says to Abraham, about this time next year, you're, you're going to have a son. Abraham chuckled inside because uh, he knew that was impossible. Sarah's womb was dead. There was no chance that she could have any children. And Sarah, who was in the tent, listening through the tent opening, laughed out loud. And uh, the Lord said, why, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah said, I didn't laugh. The Lord said, yes, you did. <laughs> and uh, the, the writer goes on to tell us how, how God begins to think. He says, now, why should I hide from Abraham what I plan to do? I've chosen Abraham. He's my man. And I know that he's going to raise his children to, to follow me. Why should I hide anything from Abraham? I'm going to tell him everything that's in my, in my mind. And so he proceeds to tell him about Sodom and and as the story goes on, he told Abraham more and more of the way he was thinking about life and, and about things. Abraham came to have an intimate knowledge of the thinking of God, and so he's designated as the friend of God. Now, that's what it means to know God, to be clued in on the way he thinks. And that comes from a knowledge of Scripture imparted to our minds by the Spirit of God. These are the deep things of God, the profound things of God, the great secrets of, uh, of, of humanity, the lost secrets of the human race, the things that we need to know that make life uh, livable. Uh, the deep things of God are not the complex theological issues uh, such as whether or not you believe in a supralapsarian or infralapsarian view of the decrees. Uh, the deep things of God are not necessarily eschatology. You know, that's, that's, those are the profound things when, when you get mature. Then you can delve into eschatology. But uh, no, the deep things of God are these great secrets about, about life and, and God's heart and how he thinks about us. 
and what aspirations he has for us. And as a matter of fact, Paul goes on to tell us what those deep things are. He prays, let me read verses 17 and 18 again and follow along in the argument. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your mind having been enlightened, so that, this is what comes as a result of the knowledge of God, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Three things. He prays that we may know the hope to which we have been called, the enormous wealth which we have in God's eyes, and the incredible power that's, that's available to us. These are the, are the deep things, the profundities in, in the mind of God. And the first is that we may know the hope to which we have been called. Most of our hope, frankly, is just uh, naive optimism. We, we just think things are going to get better. You know, somehow we're not going to be sick much longer. We'll get well. Or our marriage is going to get better. It just has to. I mean, it couldn't get any worse. It's got to get better. And uh, our children are going to uh, grow up and uh, please us and be, be a delight to us in our old age. And uh, one of these days, uh, our business is going to take a turn for the better. You know, that's the way we tend to look at things. But frankly, the, the older I get, the more I realize that that's an illusion. Uh, my conclusion is that Murphy was an optimist. Uh, <laughs> th- you know, things don't necessarily get better. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes we don't get better physically. Sometimes our children aren't more responsive. Sometimes, no matter how much effort and time and, and love we devote to our marriage, it just doesn't seem to, to work out. Our, our hope is unrealistic. But what Paul prays for is that we'll know the hope that's coming to us in heaven. Hope in the New Testament is always directed toward the eternal state. Things may not get better here. But we have the certainty of our hope. And there is no contingency attached to that hope. It's certainty. Now, one of these days, we're going to have everything that's coming to us because of, our, because of the redemption that's ours in our, in our Lord Jesus. He's going to set everything right. He's going to come back, or we're going to see him, and everything is going to be set right. And that's a certainty that keeps us stable in the here and now. One of these days I'm not going to have this uh, battered up old body and, and gimpy knee. Someday I'm going to have an immortal body, one that's not subject to decay. That's a sure thing. That's not something I hope will happen. That's something I know will happen. So the, the gimpiness doesn't matter much now. And, and one of these days the, the, the moral problems that we struggle with, the, the habits and the sins that seem to suppress us and, and dominate us, We'll be set free from all of those. John says we're going to see the Lord and we'll be like him. He doesn't promise that everything's going to be set right now. We may see some progress, and hopefully we will see some progress, some moral progress. But but we can't expect perfection until we see him. That's our hope, and that's certain. 
We're always reluctant to talk about heaven as Christians because we uh, uh, people say that's pie in the sky by and by, but it isn't. It's real. It's certain. And believe me, the older I get, the more precious that idea becomes that one of these days I'm going to see the Lord and he's going to set everything right. My destiny is fixed. So it doesn't really matter too much what happens down here because I know I have a hope. Uh, A number of years ago, I uh, saw an interview with Jim Cott, who at that time was pitching for the Minnesota Twins. He now, I think, is... uh, pitching for someone else but Cott is a, is a Christian and he was being interviewed and the, the interviewer asked him what, what difference does it make to you being a born again Christian and a professional baseball player and his answer he thought for a moment and he said well so I'll give you an illustration a couple of weeks ago I was pitching in a game and it was the bottom of the ninth two outs we were ahead by one run there were runners on second third and I had a full uh, count on the batter and I looked down toward the catcher, and he flashed the signal. And as I went into my roundup, or windup, <laughs> as I went into my windup, the thought went through my head, I sure am glad that my destiny is not riding on this next pitch. And that's the way we face life as a Christian. My destiny is not riding on the next business decision that I make, the decision that I make about uh, vocational choices or where I will go to school or which doctor I will uh, select for a given uh, surgery or whatever. My destiny is certain and secure, and, and I have that hope to cling to. It's for real. second thing that Paul prays is that we may come to know the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints. And there are two ways to look at that passage, at that phrase. He's either talking about uh, the inheritance that we have, which is God himself, or it's the inheritance which God has. Now, I'm not sure that there's any way to uh, answer that question definitively and, and absolutely, but for myself, I take the latter choice. We are God's inheritance. That's an old and time-honored idea. It goes all the way back to the, to the Old Testament. In, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, Israel is described as God's portion. Jacob is his inheritance. In other words, the really valuable thing in the world is his people. It's not gold and silver in the hills. Uh, it's, it's not the, the galaxies. Those are not precious to God. It's people. In Exodus 19, God's people are described as as a unique people, a very special possession. That's the phrase that the King James uh, translated, a peculiar people. I remember reading that the first time and thinking, oh, that's that's a good designation for some of the Christians I know. But uh, the word does not, uh, well, actually in in, uh, the 17th century, peculiar meant unique. And that's what what the phrase means. We are a very special possession of God. The Hebrew word segalah uh, that's used in this phrase refers to portable treasure. The, the sort of possessions that are not fixed to the ground like real estate and buildings. It's the sort of thing that you can move from place to place that, it, that, that, is, that it has ultimate value. Uh, it's the sort of thing that you, uh, that you retrieve from your house when it's burning. When, when your house catches on fire, you go in and get your segalah whatever is most precious to you. And 
And that's the way God looks at you. Do you realize that? You were his segula, the most valuable commodities on the face of the earth. He loves you. That's the kind of worth that you have in his eyes. That's why he has invested so much in you, because you're so, uh, you're so valuable. You know, I, I find most people have a, a deep-seated uh, sense of unworthiness, which we tend to cover up with our bravado and and bluster, but underneath the conceit I, I see is is a lot of, of uneasiness about ourselves. I used to work with students, as you know, and it was my privilege to work on the Stanford campus with some of the brightest young men and women in the United States. They, uh, that school attracts students from the, they select students from the one top one percent of high schools all across the states, and the archetypical. Stanford student is not only bright, but he or she has been a student leader and an athlete and, and uh, sort of renaissance uh, person. And, and I, I can remember when I first went there, I was, I was terribly intimidated by these, these students. But uh, over the ten years that I was there, I came to see that the major problem, the major problem that they had was a deep-seated sense of inferiority. They didn't think they were smart. They thought they had a personality like a putty knife, even if they'd been student body president. Uh, lovely young young women thinking of themselves as ugly and, and unattractive, and I thought, boy, these are my kind of people. You know, I, I can I can relate to this. I don't only feel inferior; I am. You know, fit right in. But. Uh, you know, I, I came to see that that's across the board. That's a problem everyone struggles with, and, and we need to learn to see ourselves as God sees us, as incredibly worthwhile, as the most valuable things on, on the face of the earth, greatly loved by Him. And then finally, he, he prays that as a result of knowing God, we, we may come to realize the enormous power that we have which he spells out in the verses that follow. I won't take time to read them, but the uh, essence of his argument is simply that we have the same power available to us that raised Jesus from the dead. No one has ever been able to accomplish that, that feat. No one could ever raise a, a dead uh, carcass and bring it to life again, but, but God raised Jesus, and that power is available to us. My, uh, my being on a, uh, as you know, I was on a university campus this, this past week, and in talking to students, it struck me again that so many young men and, and women uh, feel today that they're, they're dominated by forces, overwhelming forces that they have no control over, economic and social and political forces that uh, move them uh, against their will in directions that they, they really have no desire to go. And the major decisions of their life are made for them by other, other people. And yet Paul says, that's, that's not so. There is no power on earth greater than the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's greater than any name that can be named. Presidents, dictators, cartels, committees, angels, demons, New Agers, communists. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be intimidated by these forces. Because God is greater than, than any force that's, a, that's arrayed against us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. To give us power to change. To give us power to rise again when, when, we, when we fail. 
And when you stop and think about it, there are three things that, that bug the human race. Hopelessness, worthlessness, and impotence, powerlessness. And these are the three things that Paul says are available to us when we come to know God. Now, reading through this passage and thinking about it has, has really changed my understanding of the nature of prayer. And I think it ought to uh, give us a new direction, a new impetus in, in the way we pray for people. How do you pray for someone when they lose a job? Now, I, I know how I pray. Lord, give him a job. Man needs a job. He's got to support his wife and children. Give him a job. And there's nothing wrong with praying. Give them a job, certainly. But uh, there are greater issues at stake than, than earning your keep. One of the most devastating things that can happen to a man is to lose his job because so much of his sense of self-worth is tied up in what he does. I know what happens to me when I go on vacation. After about two weeks, I get really antsy because I can't prove anything. You know, I can't, can't demonstrate that I'm worth something. And to be out of a job for weeks and weeks and weeks is just devastating to a man's self-image. How should we pray? Well, that they will come to see how, how God sees them and how worthy they are in his sight. That their names are written in heaven. And that their sense of worth will come from him rather than from, from finding a, a, a job. Or that they'll have power to be patient and wait and not get irritable and cranky and hard to live with at home and lash out at their family because they're, they're so much on edge and so frustrated by not having a job. See? Or pray for hope, help them to see that this life is not all that there is and that making money and gaining power and making a name for yourself is not all there is in this life. There's something uh, infinitely more at stake. Or when someone is going through a divorce, that's the most devastating thing that can happen to a man or a, or a woman. Your sense of worth is just decimated. Well, how do we pray for them? Uh, Lord, find them a husband. Find them a wife. No, that's all right. You can pray that if you want to. But, but there are greater issues at stake. Pray that they'll come to see that their names are written in heaven, that God loves them, and that he is their husband or their wife or whatever they need, and they'll, he or she will walk in power and in poise and, and in peace through this the troubled times ahead. Or when someone is desperately ill, we, we can pray that God would heal them. That's legitimate. But uh, more importantly, that they will see that the ultimate hope of healing is when they, when they receive their, their immortality and they get their eternal body. And that though they may have to suffer for a time, that God can give them the power to be gracious and loving and and sweet and thoughtful and, and kind no matter what they're going through. You see, it changes the whole direction of your prayer for people. I was telling Carolyn this past week how this has affected me in terms of praying for my father. I just, uh, the older I get, I think the more I, I love that, that old gentleman. And, and I just, you know, I wanted to, uh, wanted to pray for him effectively. And uh, he, he is 88 this year. Some of you may remember, he was here five years ago when I was installed as pastor of this church. He was 83 at the time. And those of you that know my father know he is tough as an old warthog. He, uh, he, he had, when he came here in 78, he had just, he was 83 at the time, and he had just completed a week-long trail ride in Wyoming. 
uh, he went up uh, to a friend's ranch and helped him round up cattle for a week. And when he got off of the plane, he had a saddle over his shoulder. And, and uh, he has just always been so strong and so resourceful and just on top of everything. And uh, what I've detected over the last few months as we've talked on the phone, I call him periodically and he calls me and we just chat, is a, is a weakening of his physical resources. He, his mind is not as sharp. He can't remember things. And he's getting more afraid. He doesn't want to travel as he did before. And he doesn't want to go out to the farm and, and work. And, you know, I can just see his strength uh, diminishing. And as I studied through this passage and thought about it, it, I realized, now, this is what I need to pray for my father. That he'll realize that his hope is not now. He knows that. He's a believer. It's then. And secondly, that his worth is not tied up in his ability to, to ride and rope and all the things he used to do or to teach Bible studies, but his worth resides in, in God's love for him and, and the fact that his name is written in, in heaven. And that he has power to continue on to be his uh, gentle, sweet uh, self. You know, most people as they get older either get more ornery and irascible or they get sweeter. And I'm just praying that God will make him even sweeter in his declining years. You see, seeing this truth changes the way we pray for people. We don't miss the mark. We pray in line with the thoughts of God and the mind of God for ourselves and for others. This is what Paul calls praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is not praying in, uh, in some uh, uh, ecstatic, uh, with ecstatic utterances or in some unknown language or uh, praying in in theological language, uh, which is especially suited for heaven, is just uh, praying in line with God's greater purposes. When we come to know God, we come to see what God is after. And then we can pray in line with the greater issues that are at stake. Let's, uh, let's pray. And as, as we uh, conclude this morning, let's, let's pray together. For the things that uh, we've seen and learned uh, in this passage. Pray first for yourself. That the Spirit of God would, would increase your knowledge of God as you, as you study the scriptures. That you would have a deep, profound understanding of how he thinks. And that you would see that your, your hope is not in the here and now. But in what's coming to us when we see our Lord. And that your worth is not bound up in, in what you possess, but in the fact that God possesses you. And that you have power to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. That, you, that none of us can say, I can't do it. We may say, I won't. But we can't say, I can't. Because we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead at our fingertips. Pray those things for yourself. Now let's join together in praying for Sue Hazen in that way. That God will heal her if that's his, his desire, his plan. But that uh, throughout she would have, have power and hope and know that she's loved, that she's enfolded by your care. And now for, for any others as they come to your mind.
Father, thank you for teaching us how to pray, how much we need it. And it's our it's the desire of our heart to be obedient to this truth. Help us as a body of believers to intercede for one another in this way. To understand the greater things that are at stake. To overlook the the things that uh, that don't really matter and focus on those things that count. Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of the hope that that we have of the future that that awaits us and not get bogged down in in our present difficulties, the circumstances that uh, that tend to uh, depress us and suppress us. Help us to see what lies ahead. Help us to realize that we have infinite worth in your eyes, that we're greatly loved and cared for. And thank you that we have the power today to walk through our circumstances in our homes, in our offices, our our businesses, our campuses, our shops, our farms, wherever we are, and to make visible the invisible Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.